Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. It's the start of a new year's worth of podcasts and kicking off this election year, I have noted author David Camp to discuss his editorial from the New York Times this week in which he says it's time to stop making jokes about Donald Trump. And coming from humor writer and spy magazine alumnus like David, that is some kind of statement. I think you'll very much enjoy this show today. And welcome back. And of course, I also bake some very wicked cookies inspired by David. Uh, A bit of housekeeping before we get there. All the recipes for the podcast and links can be found on my Substack newsletter at marissarothkov.substack.com. You can support my work with a subscription for $5 a month, or if that's not possible yet, you can subscribe for free. And don't forget to join Deep State Radio as a member for special perks. Either way, I'm grateful for your support. Hello, and welcome to a new year and the same old podcast. No, it's going to be better than ever. It's the secret life of cookies. And it is January, and my dog is slurping water in the background. I only hope you can hear it because it is a delicious sound. Um, I have a guest today. His name is Mr. David Camp. You will know him well from this podcast as he is now on for his third, count them third time, and that's three. And he is also the author of Sunny Days, um, the children's television revolution that changed America, which is a fantastic book about the TV show that raised me, uh, Sesame Street, and also the author of the United States Arugula of arugula. And I was not raised by arugula. I was raised by iceberg lettuce. But there you go. Um, welcome, Mr. David Camp, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Are we still allowed to say that? No, actually, I, I, I heard an etiquette um, expert say that you are only allowed to say Happy New Year up until um, the 12th day of January. Though I'll, I'll say this. I love that we are doing this podcast now because we are in the midwinter doldrums. And, you know, I always feel like, yeah, I need some, some pick-me-up to counteract the seasonal affect disorder that I suffer from. And cookies and a cookie podcast 
um, like what it's the perfect solution. <laughs> it's the perfect solution. Doctors. So thank you. Thank you yes. very much for being here and thank you for inspiring me. And before we get on to the topic of the day, which is the uh, opinion piece that you wrote for the New York Times this past week, which is um, just so spot on that I had to have you on to talk about it. Um, you said, Marissa, could I put halva in a cookie? And I said, David, of course you can. And I went to my local grocery store and found halva wrapped up like little Snickers bars. Who knew? Looking all very modern and hip in a nice red package. And I thought, yes. Uh, I thought. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, I'm here to create. And I thought I'd make a dark chocolate cookie with dark chocolate Ooh. chips in it. So as a sort of balance Ooh. to the cloying sweetness uh, that people love about halva. And uh, so that's what we're doing today. I've taken a cookie dough that I've made before that I called indictment cookies because I added, <laughs> at the, I created them just as the first seven indictments came out um, and uh, of Trump. And I, then oh, it, it sounded it sounded biblical or, or like like a, like a seder like thing, you know, the four <laughs> questions, and then we do then we do the seven indictments exactly the seven. But it turned out that after I created it shortly, like the next day, it turned into thirty seven indictments. And so I put the task up to my readers um, whether or not they actually wanted to find thirty seven things they could include in the cookie, and a few tried. Um, but today. I'm but what is the upshot of the basic dough? Is it a, sh a shortbread dough? Or no, what it's kind of not. Dough is it's it a very basic. It's a basic creamed butter and sugar dough. I'm getting my dog a chewy toy right now because apparently that's the only type of cookie that is important right now um, for my dog Bosco. Bosco says hi. Um, it's a, a, going to be a soft cookie with a crunchy edge. I didn't originally okay. envision shortbread because shortbread and halva have similar textures. Then I started going down a whole different routes where I was like, what if it became the crumbly topping on a like crumb cake? And or what if it was a pistachio cake and it had chunks of halva mm. in it? And so I think there's a lot of room to play here. Now, am I saying it wrong? Because my whole life I've called it halva. You're what? saying halva. I've always said halva, and I don't know. I guess it's a North answer. Jersey. I mean, you know, I'm from Northwest Central New Jersey, and you're from South Central New Jersey. Central, <laughs> South Central. You make it sound like South Central LA. Hey. You know, like, and we and we 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 have our uh, territorial beefs. <laughs> exactly. um, are you on the Taylor Ham side or the pork roll side? I'm on. That's the question. Exactly. I'm on the pork roll side. Okay, I am too. Yeah. So we have that in common. No, but halva. But the other thing is that I requested this, and thank you for obliging my request. I feel very privileged to appear on the Secret Life of Cookies, and actually have my request for an ingredient fulfilled. Because I've loved halva, which is how I'm going to say it halva. since I was a kid. You're right; it it can be cloyingly sweet, but I love the texture of it. it has this really kind of I, w I don't know how to describe it. Like unpleasant. Sort of chalky, oh no, sorry. No, 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 no. It, it's it, it kind of because it, it's it's smashed sesame seeds mixed with sweeteners, and I don't know. I kind of love the texture, but more as an accent than as the main event. And I've had it swirled into ice cream. Oh yeah, it worked really well. Mm. So I thought, would it work in a cookie, or would it burn because it's hot, got the high sugar content? And you tell me. 
I'll tell you. Um, I'm. It, okay. There are loads of recipes out there for halva in all sorts of things. It's a very popular ingredient. I thought of going the whole tahini cookie route, and then I'm like, no, we gotta gotta meld some worlds here. Um, you probably say That's too many sesame components. <laughs> too, many, there. Yeah. too much sesame. Um, you call it halva. Although it does fit with the Sesame Street. Sorry, Sesame oh Street. Oh my God, theme. that's you, right. You, I, it, it had not occurred to me that there there's a Freudian uh, or a subconscious. Um, I had not thought of it till this moment that I'd written a book about Sesame Street and requested a sesame product. I even I, I didn't come up with that. Fascinating, fascinating. Um. And in a sense, we will open sesame, your mind. No. Okay, I'll stop. Because um, it's horrible. Um, mm. I'm going to start scooping these cookies, which have dark chocolate chunks in them as well. And I'm going to make them sort of large cookies. And then I'm going to do a sort of, um, I'm going to make a little indentation and plop in a reasonably large sized chunk of halva into it and then bake them off so that I can eat them while we're talking. Um, so... I wanted to talk to you about something that is not cloyingly sweet. In fact, it's something, it's kind of the opposite. You, um, people should know that you and I met many moon, uh, many, many, many years ago um, about oh, at Spy Magazine. We were both young chicks. The Like the downy fluff was just coming off of me and my feathers were growing. Oh, and- I, thought you were, I thought you were saying that we were chicks like, like young girls together. Yeah, which, we were, which, um, and then is, no, no. <laughs> it's a really cool counter narrative that I was not aware of. But let's go. Um, well, you and I uh, were y- young chicks at, at, um, at the, like the birds, at, downy at, downy little birds downy at Spy little. Magazine. We we were the first summer interns. It was you, me, and a young woman named Tylee Levis. Hi, Tylee. But we. We three were the very first summer interns in the history of Spy Magazine. And for the few people who don't know what Spy Magazine is, could you kind of give everybody an overview of it for all my young listeners? I love that it's, it's early issues build it kind of simply and in a really good way, arrogantly, as the New York Monthly. You know, not not a New York Monthly, but the New York Monthly. Spy was a monthly magazine founded by the editors Graydon Carter and Kurt Anderson and the publisher Tom Phillips um, in 1986. And it was a satirical monthly. That's the important part, is that it wasn't a straight, like, general interest magazine or news magazine. It was a magazine that published stories about New York and about sort of popular culture and about politics and about... Uh, society that was always with a humorous satirical edge. And also, this is really important, reported, meaning it wasn't just like a bunch of jokes. It was like it was grounded. It was actually grounded in fairly rigorous reporting and fact checking. And I loved it. So, and you know, I've never asked you, what was your path? Because you and I met that summer, mm-hmm. um, 87, not summer of 87, which was the first summer spy even had a summer. That's right. And I'll tell you, before I tell my story of how I arrived at SPY, what was the impetus for you getting to SPY Um, at that time? Because you were both college students. We were both college students. My mother had sent me a copy of this new satirical monthly. Um, I had no sense of how long it had been around. And I knew that I wanted to get into this crazy world of publishing. Um, And I remember distinctly reading it, loving it, and looking at the masthead 
for people who've never seen a magazine, a masthead is where all the writers and um, people who produce the magazine's names are. It's like a cast list. Um, can you tell that I teach students that are 20 years old who don't have any sense of what an actual magazine is like? Uh, anyway, I um, looked at this magazine, read the masthead, and I realized that there was one intern, a guy named Eric Kaplan, who was really like the first year-long M and he's now the creator of basically every TV show that you've ever watched. He's the funny. He created a uh, co-created Futurama, right. the, the um, Matt Groening show. Right. And wrote uh, extensively for um, the show that name I can't forget that everybody watches big bang theory. Um, anyways. And I was like, they don't have a woman working on their staff. They need a female intern. And for God's sake, I don't know. I'm not, you know, it was my Mount Holyoke that had seeped into my soul. And I wrote a letter and I got a, like a letter back on a cute note card from like George Kalajarakis who said, Hey, yeah, sure. If you're ever in the city, come by and meet us and we can talk about an internship. And I was like, hooray. I, they later on told me they had no idea what they were doing, what was going on. And they were like, sure, why not? So it was a question of writing a note at the right time and pure love. Right. And I had a very similar experience um, where people like, how did you get that prestigious internship? I'm like, oh, it's because first of all, there weren't many people putting themselves forward. And second of all, the, the bar to, 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 to getting there was quite low. Like they were like, you're interested? Sure. Come on in. But the, I guess the difference is, and this, this, this leads to the um, essay I wrote as a, a guest essay I wrote for the New York Times this week, um, is that my impetus for even writing to them was that I picked up a copy of the magazine, an early copy. Um, I think it was their third or fourth issue. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just, I loved how stylish the magazine was laid out. Right. I liked the tone of it, but it was also that they specifically were going after Donald Trump. They were ridiculing Donald Trump, right. calling him out for his shadiness and his tackiness in late 86 and early 87. Right. And that, and you, you'd think like, why would, why would a college kid care? And I'll tell you what, cause you know, at the time, the eighties was a time of like big personalities, big, um, you know, shoulder pad jackets. And, yes. and, and I remember, and, and it was like Ed Koch was mayor and Trump was in the media as this, like kind of in a positive way as this like flashy, dare I say, handsome, brash, swaggery young de developer and um and i just remember being like repelled by this man at from the outset um and wondering good why instincts. he was getting i guess so um specifically i mean there were a bunch of media stories but the people forget the general tenor of press coverage of him in the early 80s was fawning mm. and celebratory even though all the signs that we see you know exacerbated to a point of psychosis now, they were all there then. And I remember watching with my dad in 85, a 60 minutes profile mm -hmm. of Donald Trump by Mike Wallace of all people, who was the guy who was known for making, you know, people sweat, <laughs> you know, in a hot seat. And even Mike Wallace did this weirdly fawning profile. And I remember my dad, who's just a good, honest man, hardworking man who is not motivated to say bad things saying, that guy's a schmuck. That's a bad man right there. We watched that together. And so there was something really gratifying about Spy kind of not just calling him out for like, this This is a bad man. And we're actually going to show you that he's, um, you know, 
a shady man as well and not yeah. an honorable man, but they were doing it with humor that they, they were coining epithets for him for like, cause he was so ubiquitous and all over New York and in the gossip columns, like Liz Smith and Cindy Adams were fawning over him. Kids, those were gossip <laughs> columnists who had daily columns in the newspaper um, that recounted the activities of celebrities. Um, and Trump was among these people and like just getting all the love and it wasn't any kind of jealousy. It was just me saying, this is an unethical, tacky, vulgar, palpably bad human being who is getting this free pass. So Spy called him the short-fingered Bulgarian mm-hmm. or Queensborn casino <laughs> operator. Um, these funny epithets designed to kind of you know, shrink him down to size. And I love that. And so that was actually the foundational story of me applying to SPY, getting an internship to SPY, ultimately going to work for SPY full-time when I graduated college and becoming a professional writer. Mm -hmm. Meaning were it not for my saying, oh my God, these people are my people. They speak my language. They're on the same wavelength. I don't know that I would have had, that path would not have opened itself up to me. And and I just want to point out because I'm proud to know you that like since then you've been... uh, you interviewed Paul McCartney, you've interviewed Bruce Springsteen. And by interview, I don't mean like, hey, hi, what's your favorite lunch, which is sort of the kind of interviews I do, but more like, oh my, you like go in depth with these people. Um, President Biden, in fact, when he was in that interregnum between uh, his leaving office as Obama's vice president and his becoming president, that was quite a fascinating thing to do. Um, Yeah, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Kerry Washington, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Sly Stone. Yeah, he'd been a recluse. But, you know, what we're really, I have to get back to the op-ed that I wrote this week. You do. Because, because it goes back to the Trump thing. Because it goes back to um, Trump. And here's and, the point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've been really bummed by how, even at this point, first of all, the very fact that he is, you know, the presumptive Republican nominee for president after all we've been through that's a bummer enough. Um, but also the fact that there's a certain responsibility now that comes with how do we prevent him from becoming president again? Because it would really be terrible for the country, for for humanity, really. And I'm not saying this in any kind of ad hominem, yeah, insult way. I'm nope. saying it like in the most principled, um, idealistic way possible. And it bugs me that we're still treating him as a figure of fun, mm. you know, like he's hilarious every day. He does something hilarious. Like um, right now. And I know another repeat guest on your show is E. Jean Carroll. Yes. Um, who is like, so she, her second, uh, you know, legal action against him is as, as this podcast is being recorded, that that trial is happening right now in, right. A, court, in a courthouse. Um, so it's, it's serious stuff. And, but every day, like people will look at that trial or they'll look at something he'll do on the stump. And it's still like, he's, he's um like, you'll still have someone doing an impression of him and just doing that. Many people are saying and like, and you know, just, just, just doing the voice, doing the mannerisms. And I had the idea to, to write a guest essay for the New York times saying, look, my foundational story as a writer is that was to make fun of Donald Trump in the late 80s and early 90s. And 
I get the value of that. And it had a real value, but now is the time to stop. Mm -hmm. Not to go easy on them, not to say like, oh my gosh, we shouldn't tell jokes about him. That's not the point. It's quite the opposite. It's that he's too serious a threat at this point when he's openly promising to be a dictator on day one, when he's saying um, he's promising vengeance on his enemies and criticizing those who oppose him as vermin, you know, using using very um, fascistic Mm -hmm. rhetoric. It's this is not the time to keep doing Trump shtick. And the thing is, it's so easy to do. He gives you fodder every day, just like every day you could say, look at the wacky thing he did. I'm going to put my monologue tonight for a laugh. Right. And like, and by the way, I'm not saying it's easy for comedians. This is a big ask of, you know, your late <laughs> night hosts and, and Saturday Night Live. I'm serious of like that. Don't make him a figure of fun. Don't make him a figure of hilarity because he's past that. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's this dangerous and when he's got this good of a chance to become president again, I feel like it, it contributes to the normalization of like, we've, we've always done this. Our whole lives, you and me, Marissa, we've grown up with, um, you know, whether it goes back to Johnny Carson when we were kids, like making fun of the Democrat making fun of the Republicans. Right. They're all hilarious because all politicians are hilarious. We're not in that situation. This is really unique. Right. And we, that, and we you know, should we make have, fun of these politicians as a way of kind of keeping them on our level. You know what I mean? And like bring them down and yeah. But we're beyond that with Donald Trump. Yeah. So, so the essay is basically saying, I'm calling for a moratorium on Trump jokes and Trump humor, which sounds really humorless. But the point I'm making is it's not that he isn't funny. And I say he's funny, sometimes not even inadvertently, but just like, look, I've spent the early, I spent the early part of my career, you know, getting paid to write Trump humor. So I totally get it. But I'm saying the stakes are too high that what we need is seriousness. We need to be serious about what this is and not keep just saying, oh, this is going to be a really good year for the media because it's an election year and Trump's going to be doing hilarious stuff all year. And so it's going to be great for SNL. It's going to be great for you know the late night shows. No, it's not great. It's really dire and serious. And so we need to, you know, I don't know, like balance between acknowledging what he does, but not, not treating it like he, he, he's just... He's just fodder for for a million jokes. He's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I, we're past that. We're completely past that. And one of the points that you made in your story was, you know, Charlie Chaplin was able to make fun of Hitler at the start of or the 1940, 1941. Um, but and and that worked. But it's different than today. Yeah. And and why is that? It is, and it, and it. Well, um, it's interesting because um, one of our former bosses, Kurt Anderson, read my column and he respectfully disagreed. He said, I think we still need to make fun of Trump. It's one of our one of the tools in our arsenal. And, you know, I, there, there's there's validity to that. I, I disagree, but that's that's Kurt's take. Um, but one thing Kurt said is, well, what about the great dictator? And what about Ernst Lubitsch's to be or not to be? You know, those those were comedies that took place during the ascent and of, of Hitler and, and then during the, the, and the second one during the Second World War and the U.S.'s involvement in it. And he said, weren't they um, valuable? I, I would agree they were. But the big difference is, is that Hitler was a threat that across the ocean who we were fighting against. Right. So someone like um, Chaplin, who is an Englishman working in America, 
um, or the people making the movie to be or not to be. Those were American movies that were, you know, coming from a position of moral strength that we, the United States of America, were a beacon of the world's beacon of democracy. Right. You know, and so ridiculing Hitler was was part of what united us for a great cause. This time, the threat is within the house. It's coming from within the house. Like that. So, so, we're, so like, you know, it, it's, 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 um, we, we, you know, those guys like Chaplin was operating from the position of moral strength. This is different because we, we actually have to acknowledge that something is, the threat is really, really, really close to us. And I feel like, um, and it's almost as if the humor won't do enough. The humor will just plane everything flat and put them on the same level of President Biden or anyone else that, you know, this is, this is a, a bigger emergency, to be honest, you know, in terms of the United States, um, in terms of the threat that it poses to the future of us as a democracy, as lofty as it sounds, it's, I believe that to be true. I agree with you. And, and, the, and the threat that it poses to our, I mean, our constitution is already sort of like dangling in the wind a little bit, thanks to many of the people on the Supreme Court and things like that. So um, Mike, Mike, and I'll, I'll just add another thing. I'm sorry. One other thing is Please. that Graydon Carter, the, uh, the other of our two bosses, he liked the column more. We, and by the way, this is not to pit them against each other because I love them both. But like, <laughs> Graydon said, I think Graydon agreed with the premise. And he said, in fact, because Graydon was the editor of Vanity Fair for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And he noted that one of the reasons um, for the demise of the original Vanity Fair, which ran from like the early 1920s, um, to 1936, mm-hmm. he said, was that that version of Vanity Fair failed to rise to the occasion of treating Hitler seriously? That they like that the, the, it was like the frothy, you know, 1920s Vanity Fair. And as as they as we went into the 30s, um, Vanity Fair in its fizzy, frothy, ha ha ha, Dorothy <laughs> Parker way, yeah. kind of treated Hitler as a fun, a funny little man with a funny little mustache. So Graydon said that that was it, there's there's a parallel there that like a, a failure to to um, take the threat seriously. And he said it was part of the demise of Vanity Fair. There's a lot of other factors, but that was one. That's really interesting um, to look back at it historically like that to be able to look at Vanity Fair's demise that way. Um, really interesting. Uh, I I don't wonder though because of this is you know and I'm going to put you on the spot here because <laughs> why not? Uh, how do you reach people who aren't interested in politics and maybe aren't paying attention, um, who aren't willing to, you know, in a sense, take Donald Trump seriously, and they should. Do we, you know, create ads like it's three o'clock in the morning, who do you want to answer the phone sort of things um, to scare people? Or, you know, is humor a way to reach people who might not otherwise pay any attention? I think it might have been in previous times, but now the humor to someone who's like maybe not that interested in voting or not paying close attention to politics, I almost think would have the opposite effect of it. it it's too leveling. Mm-hmm. It's too leveling of the threat, meaning it, it, it kind of just, it, it, it kind of creates that, that horse race narrative or that like both sides are the same narrative more mm-hmm. that all politicians are a joke. Um, which used to be true to some extent that you could, you know, meaning they were all equally make funnable. But I think now if you're someone who's just glancingly interested in politics and you turn on 
TV and you just see someone in Biden makeup doing Biden, someone in Trump makeup doing Trump, you just that'll just make you think it's kind of an either or proposition. Mm. Um, I think to answer your question, and this is another thing I said in the in the column, is that we spy alums are often told because of Trump's ubiquity, oh, we need spy more than ever. Please bring back spy. And I said, we don't need, that's flattering as hell, but we don't need spy. We don't need a spy revival. We need, I said something like, we need probity, seriousness, and focus, Yeah, which is a really weird thing for someone who makes a living or has made a living writing a lot of humor. That's a funny thing or a strange thing to say. Um, And what I mean by that is I think to answer your question, how do we counter this? I don't even know if it's through popular culture. I think it's more like voter engagement. Um, One thing I'm really proud of my 88-year-old mother for Mm -hmm. and my 27-year-old daughter for is they have both been very active in canvassing um, in swing states like Pennsylvania. Um, And it's what you do is meaning it's partly to register voters who otherwise might sit out the election and partly to talk to them about their values and what's important to them. And like, this is the opposite of humor. This is like (laughs) the most sincere um, engaging with people. And it's not about ad hominem, like don't joke, don't vote for Trump because he's an asshole. uh, Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes. It's encouraged. Uh, It's encouraged. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not, so I'm not an ad hominem swearer either, but, (laughs) but the point being is, is, I, you know, you know what else I'm I'm done with too is like the people who on social media call Trump Cheeto Hitler and and insults like that. Like I get it, I get how angry you are that this man um, holds the reins um, of of the Republican Party, but that kind of thing isn't going to win people over either. I think you've got to talk to people about what do they care about, what is the future they want, and how grave a threat this guy poses. You know how voting for him will really jeopardize your future, um, not just in some macro abstract way, but, you know, in, in terms of your enfranchisement as a citizen, in terms of what he might do to the economy, what he might do to our foreign policy, what he might do to make us feel less secure, or what he might do to, to your rights, um, right. which he will try to curtail because he wants to be a dictator. Um, so I think I think you have to have these. And so part of what my mom and my daughter and, and their their peers do is they talk to people not on this level of like, you know, insult number one, man, insult number two, man, insult number three, man, therefore vote for Biden or vote for whoever. It's it's like, like, let's let's talk. Let's talk about what you want and why you should use your vote. It's part of the power you have. And so it like, my answer is a really sincere one, mm-hmm. but at the point, the fact that, um, you know, a spy trained Trump <laughs> zingerist is saying this is, is, is my point is that, yes, I get that he's funny. And I, I said, I hope there comes a time when he can return to the comedian's um, repertoire the way that Nixon did. Like, you know, that, 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 you and I were little kids when Nixon resigned yeah. the presidency, but long after our childhood, there were still comedians doing Nixon bits, you know, like with the, my, the hunched shoulders and saying, like, my, I'm not a crook. My first joke was about Richard Nixon. The first joke I ever wrote. Let's, let's, let's hear it. Um, I was three. I was maybe four. I'm just going to tell you. Um, and I thought this was hilarious at the time. And I, well, okay. Um, uh, Richard Nixon has a head shaped like a peanut. 
love it. <laughs> and I could do um, a really and, good and impersonation. But I thought this was such an, you know, you know, it was my first use of like similes, metaphors, which is, you know, stood by me as a writer. Yes, and it's, you're also not wrong because um he did have a very peculiarly shaped head. Yeah, and so now I see something has come out of the oven. Something so has come, come out, of the, out of the oven. Let me show you over here because the pan is very hot. But those are looking pretty lush. Um, the so are those are those um like tan or off white slabs? Is that the halva? That's the halva that is sort of melted into kind of mostly retained its shape and looks like a well toasted yeah. marshmallow. Um, it's got that sort of yeah. that syrupy glint that uh, marshmallows do when they get warm. And I really, now, I'll, I'll be interested to know, I'm sorry, I'll be interested to know texturally, do they work within the context of the cookie? I'm hoping that they will uh, perform a contrast, you know, and uh, <laughs> that's what, that's what they're, they're that's pointing. a big, that's a big ask <laughs> of a, of, of a, of a, of a sesame treat, you know, like, <laughs> but I can put some, know. I was going to put a few, um, chocolate sesame seeds on it too to you know give people a clue um just for color and okay. also because it looks like rat droppings because they're black ones maybe it's a wrong the wrong so, idea so maybe these, are, mouse, these are black, black sesame seeds black sesame seeds which actually end up looking a little bit like mouse droppings on the cookie so i might that's not something you're going for when you're um making cookies is that sort of mouse or rat dropping sort of look so i may steer away from any that. any uh, any any evocation of excrement is is sort of not good in a cookie is, no. is the point you're making that is that okay. is the point i'm trying to make um one more point so you do learn things from podcasts you know that's, 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 that's i mean it's, it's like lots people say podcasts are not educational or edifying and like i rest my case <laughs> we have learned something important here home cooks we have indeed um i want to make one more note uh which is one person out there, uh, two people actually out there, I think um, have been doing a pretty notable job of sort of poking fun at Donald Trump. And they are Joe Biden and Nikki Haley. And I, that is the only kind of poking fun of that I've, I'm willing to enjoy. I suppose, like you mean, calling calling uh, attention to his lack of fitness for office. Absolutely, mean? and making and Joe yeah. Biden will like make snarky comments in on Twitter or whatever about statements that um, Trump has made. Nikki Haley, you know, made her own jokes about the whole Nancy Pelosi Nikki Haley thing. And I watched her on stage, and she did a great job. Not that I ever thought I'd say that, but a great job about you know like owning the bird brain moniker that he'd given to her. Yeah, because I guess in that context, you have to counterpunch his belligerent onslaught of abuse, which you face when you were running against him. So yeah, um, and she, I, I think you're exactly right. She's to do it with some sort of almost tongue-in-cheek humor, which I don't think she necessarily and has in spades. So um, what's, what's going to be interesting to watch, Marissa, is... Um, that John Stewart is returning to the Daily Show once a week. That was the big that news was announced, this week. Um, the, yeah, I mean, and I thought like right after I I'd, um, published this piece, <laughs> um, and people thought people have asked me like, did does that like undermine your point? No, because I think if anyone's going to be well equipped to walk that fine line, it's going to be John Stewart. And there was actually a, a part of the column that was cut for space 
which was kind of the big cautionary tale of like treating Trump too much as a figure of fun. Mm -hmm. When he famously made his campaign announcement, announced his presidential campaign in June of 2015, that lunatic scene where he descends an escalator in Trump Tower. Mm -hmm. First of all, who who makes an entrance by descending into like, uh, but, but, uh, and then he makes this this speech, uh, like an unhinged speech, in which he smears Mexicans as rapists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so that 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 set the tenor not just of the candidacy, but of alas, the presidency. Right. But the point is that was June 2015. John Stewart was going to leave the show six weeks later. He'd already declared that he was stepping down. But when that day, that night's monologue, or you know, the the, the death death bit he does at the top of the show. He played that scene and kept cutting back to himself. And he, and he's such a smart guy and Mm. he's so funny, but he treated this as the most hilarious thing in the world. Like a lot of like Trump says something crazy. You just cut back to Stuart make mugging, like kind of making a face like what? (laughs) And then he says, he says, Donald, I just want to say thank you. Cause you remember Stuart was ending his long run on the show. He said, I've only got six weeks left here. And you've put me in a comedy hospice, um, you know. And so, and, and so that's how. And I can't 100% blame him for looking at it that way because at the time, June 2015, no one thought that the campaign was going to gain the momentum it did. Everyone thought, oh, it'll be Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or someone else. Um, but at the same time, that is the cautionary tale that someone as smart as John Stewart did not see how serious. This was going to become and made that comedy hospice joke that it was that 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 the Trump candidacy not only wasn't bad, it was a gift to comedians. So I think John Stewart is all too aware of like, I cannot let that happen again. Mm-hmm. And he's also a man who are for a funny guy could be very serious. Yeah. You can see like how he advocated for the um, first responders um, at the World Trade Center testifying with with um total gravity and, and persuasiveness about how they deserve more, more aid than they, than they receive. So John Stewart is a principled man. And I think he will be the guy who finds a way to be funny about some aspects of this election year without doing what he did in 2015 right. and saying, you put me in a comedy hospice, you know? Yeah. I have a lot of hope for what he'll provide. I think he offers a very kind of sensible, sensible view towards it. Um, and, but it is tough. It is tough because like, it's so easy every day to like, just every day, the man is just so ridiculous and, you know, unhinged that he gives you material every day. And it's almost like now you almost have to resist, resist doing a bit about him. Yeah. And, because, because and resist that doesn't help anything. No. And resist making fun of his word salad because I think it's actually a sign of a very serious problem. Um, Yet at the same time, it it, it sort of trivializes the very process of the election. Um, I think politics as entertainment has been part of the problem too, is that we kind of treated it all as like, it's all just TV. Ultimately, it's um, all just a show, Um, you know, and it's not just a show. I remember, um, I remember it was almost exactly seven years ago. It was early in the Trump presidency when uh, 
Steve Bannon was still, was a strategist in the White House, and they announced the so-called Muslim ban, mm. where you know suddenly people from seven different countries um, were not allowed to come enter the country. Um, and of course, thank God the courts overruled it, and it only lasted about six weeks. Yeah, um, that I, that was that was like week one or two of the Trump presidency. And I remember my wife and I being so sad that day and thinking. This is it. This is the beginning of autocracy in America. Um, and I, I think the thing that saved us, of all things, was the rank incompetence of the first Trump administration. That I thought Bannon was going to be this mastermind and wizard who knew how to pull the levers of power. He turned out to be thoroughly incompetent and, that's kind of, and, and, and left the administration after a few months. And so we were saved kind of by, by their own incompetence. But, but the point being is like, I don't want to feel that again. No. I don't want to feel that again. That day, you know the restaurant Via Carota in yes, the West Village? Yeah. It's a wonderful restaurant. Uh, chefs Jody Williams and Rita Sodi. Amy and I went there and and um it's you know, it famously doesn't take reservations, so you have to go there early. We were so sad, you know, about what was going on. We were like, let's just have dinner at five PM. <laughs> There'll be no wait. We got a table. And I had three Negronis oh my um, for the only time in my life. Um, side note to listeners, Negronis are fantastic. Uh, the Negronis are fast, fantastic cocktail. Never have three of them. <laughs> Never have three. It, you'll regret. Two, two, one is great. Two certain occasions. Never have three. Never. You'll regret it. I would advise you to have um, a halva chocolate chip cookie instead if you're in that state of despair. Um, how are we doing with those cookies? We're, the they're doing really well, and I think I'm going to give it a small trial before we go here. You can see some nice gooey chocolate okay, can on you, the end. Yeah. Can I can I see the crumble when you break it? Yes, how you does can. It break? Let me show you. Okay, everybody, I've got the cookie up to the camera, and I'm breaking yeah, it. I'm going to narrate it. Oh, and it's breaking it very gently. Very gently, very gently and the halva is not falling apart. It's it's that, no. that looks wonderful. I'm going to taste it now. I'm sorry to eat on. Yeah. In my ear headphones. No, please do. That's really nice. Oh, I'm glad to hear. <laughs> That's a really thank you for this inspiration. The balance of the dark chocolate and the um the kind of almost bitterness of the halva. Yeah, um, works really nice. Do you know what it. the texture is like? It the texture can almost be a little like spackle, but in a good way. I mean, it's a paste. I think of it like wet sand because I think of it having more texture than that. But but it, it's sort of like when when people tasting wine say there are notes of um, like gunflints or whatever, yeah. and it's like when do you ever lick gunflints? What are you talking about? <laughs> so you, you you talk about something texturally like like wet sand or spackle, mm -hmm. and it sounds gross, but texturally it makes sense <laughs> on the tongue. Like sometimes you want a weird mix of textures on the tongue; it's really satisfying. Like a really that's part of what I was trying to get at. A really fine grout, you know what I mean. <laughs> In yes. fact, in some countries, they use halva for grout. No, but this is the most delicious grout I've ever eaten. Well, great. And I also think that the neat thing about halva mm -hmm. is when it's used as a complement um, rather than the main event, yeah. it has a, takes on a nuance that it doesn't as by itself. It bakes itself, so really nicely. Sweet, it bakes so nicely. Yes. Because it gets nuttier. Oh, I'm so glad. It gets nuttier. And sort I'm of so glad. Listeners, listeners, Marissa and I were, were, were con we were consulting last night, like less than less than like sixteen hours ago. We were trying to like concoct uh, uh, some cookie for this podcast episode, and 
I said, dare we try Halva? And I'm so glad you did. I did. And thank you so much. And thank you for writing this piece. Um, it's, um, it's also, it's important food for thought. And I think I um, hope people take this seriously enough so that we all have to get out there and do what your mother and your daughter are doing and canvas and make sure yeah. people take this seriously and really, and vote especially people who think that the election was stolen. Like, let's get out there and vote people. And, and also um, continue to laugh. Like, it's not saying we mm. must not have humor, because, my God, I mean, I, I'm someone who sees the humor in everything. Right. And, and, like, you know, humor and comedy sustain me. You know, my they, it's one of my three big things alongside music and food, the, thing, the, the, the things that sustain me. And um, so I'm not saying we cannot laugh, period. I'm just saying we we should not treat this man and what he represents as, you know, wacky comedy. We just can't do that this time. But we can otherwise laugh in our lives. Absolutely. And I need to correct myself. I said, you know, especially those people who should get out there and vote, people who didn't believe that their vote counted. Well, that's not actually what I meant. What I mean is people should prove that your vote counts by going out there and voting. Um, and making sure everybody yeah. does. Um, thank you so much for this. And thank you um, for this important message. And also for inspiring me with this cookie. I really appreciate it. Cookie Monster well, would be proud else, of you. I hope... Yes, yes. Um, I, I, I was going to do the voice, but I've I, I been elected not to. Um, <laughs> it's always a pleasure to be baking with you. I look forward to tasting some of your wares myself. And um, I owe you. You know. Spy magazine forever. Forever. Smart, fun, <laughs> funny. Funny, fearless. That's right, people. Smart, fun, funny, fearless. Live it. We, that should be everybody's mantra. Okay. See you. Go forth unafraid. Thank you for listening. You can find a link to David's editorial on my Substack where I've created a gift link so non-time subscribers can read it. Uh, you can follow David on X or Threads. And you can follow me there too. And if you would, please, please leave a review in under the Apple Podcasts. Thank you.